0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, good morning, church. I want to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over death and provides comfort to the downtrodden. You know, this is an interesting time in our world, and in this uncertain time, I thought it would be appropriate to begin with a reading of Psalm 23, which is one of the most uh, comforting passages in all of Scripture. And as we begin, I'm going to read it uh, slowly. I'm going to read it prayerfully. I encourage you to listen to the words. Uh, Allow each phrase to just kind of sink in and speak to your heart as we begin this kind of unique time of worship this morning and actually i'm going to be reading uh, a translation that is unique to the book of common prayer Uh, so let's hear together psalm 23 as we begin uh, worshiping this morning the lord is my shepherd therefore i lack nothing he shall feed me in green pastures and lead me forth beside the waters of comfort he shall refresh my soul and bring me forth in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You shall prepare a table before me in the presence of those who trouble me. You have anointed my head with oil and my cup shall be full. Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heavenly Father, as we begin this unique worship service this morning, we pray that your presence uh, would fill each home and we ask God that you would be with us. We're reminded today that your presence is not confined to the walls of a church, uh, but your presence fills the earth. And so God, may we uh, know that you are with us today. Speak into our lives and our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, get started, we recognize that because we're kind of meeting in this unique format, there are some things uh, that we're not able to do, uh, at least not in the same way that we normally would. Uh, And the first is sing together. I love music. I love to sing uh, praises to God together. I love to play and participate in that process. Uh, We're not able to do that this morning, um, but we do have, uh, and we have created a playlist for the Lenten and Easter season that you can be listening to this week and in the weeks to come. Uh, we're going to share that via email to our newsletter subscribers and also uh, share that via Facebook here uh, this afternoon so that you can be looking for that, uh, similar to how we've done in the Advent season before. Uh, we, this time, though, uh, songs curated uh, by our staff, by our worship team, by Daniel uh, to for the Lenten and Easter season to help lead us in worship during that time. So we encourage you to be watching your email for that and um, be worshiping with us in that way. We also won't be able to receive an offering or pass the plates this morning, So, um, but we do have online giving available and uh, via our website our church center app, so we encourage you to continue support of our church and ministry. And lastly, we won't be able to gather around the Lord's table in the same way that we normally would. But at the end of our time, um, I will lead us in a liturgy for communion, and what I want you to do is kind of take some time to gather whatever items you may have in your home. You could do that anytime while watching this broadcast. Um, And then I'll lead us. It could be maybe bread or a cracker, it could be juice, uh, wine, sparkling water, whatever you have on hand. Uh, And I encourage you to take some time to gather those items together and I'll be leading us in communion at the end of our service. Uh, I have uh, some tea and a cracker ready for that time. So uh, gather those items together for us. Um, Well, let's move into a time of just recognizing our need uh, for our Savior, Uh, and so I encourage you to just kind of prayerfully uh, join me uh, in this prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. For we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I would also add, in this time of acute need, I would add this prayer. O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. And then we receive the assurance of forgiveness in Jesus Christ from Romans chapter 8, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Thanks be to God. This morning I have uh, prepared a short sermon Uh, out of John chapter 8 so if you have a Bible around you you can kind of make your way there but I do want to share a little bit um, just about these unprecedented days and what we are facing and mostly just by way of reminder I know that many of us um, kind of vary on the information that we're trying to take in and receive related to coronavirus How do we respond? What are we to believe? Is the threat real? Is it overblown? And certainly there are, uh, probably the truth is somewhere in between, but there's a lot of discerning work to be done uh, during this time. And so I would just want to take a few moments before kind of my regularly scheduled sermon to share a few things, reminders, um, that I think will be helpful for us um, during this season the first thing I would remind us about is the character of God. God reigns over sin and death. And this reality has allowed Christians throughout history to not respond with fear in the face of uncertainty and trial, but respond with hope. We also know from the scriptures from our own experience that God is good and can be trusted And I was thinking yesterday about what it means to trust in God during a time like this. I don't think we can say, I trust in God, and so I won't get sick, uh, no matter what I do. Um, I don't think that's what trusting in God looks like in this time. We still need to take all the necessary precautions to help prevent illness in ourselves and in others. Um, And that's part of why we're meeting in this way this morning, is to take those necessary precautions uh, to do all that we can to not only protect ourselves, but protect the most vulnerable in our communities. As author Shane Claiborne wrote this week on Twitter, he says, I believe in prayer. I also believe in soap, (laughs) which I think so succinctly approaches like this kind of balanced approach of, yes, we need to be trusting. Yes, we need to be praying, but we also need to listen to Uh, the wisdom of experts and organizations that are helping to lead and guide us with the proper information during this time. So as I was thinking about what does it look like to trust in the good character of God, the God who reigns over sin and death, I think it looks like this. It, It looks like not getting caught up in panic. It looks like not getting caught up in fear but to rest in the assurance that God reigns over death and is making all things new, that what God is up to in the world is health and healing and hope in the midst of trial. God is working to bring good, yes, even out of this. That many of us have travel plans that have been canceled, sporting events that we were looking forward to that are no longer happening. Um, We have all these things that our lives have kind of been ripped out of their normal rhythms. And I wondered what would happen if we would begin to receive that as a gift of time together as a family or with friends. So I think that what it looks like to trust God is to rest in the assurance that God reigns over death and is making all things new. That He is working in and through the experts that are helping to lead the way and give us the information we need about this disease but he's also working through you and I, as we care for one another in these days and uncertain times. Which leads me to the second thing I wanna point out. What a reminder this is for us about the nature of the church. That even though we don't have a worship service as we normally do, doesn't mean that we stop being the church. I think we've learned this week as many local churches in Fort Collins, in Northern Colorado, many churches around the country are doing what we're doing and moving their services to online. What we've learned is you can take away a building and even a service time, but you can't take away the church. So I would encourage you to take time to be the church by checking in on loved ones, elderly neighbors, friends, help to make sure that they have what they need. And do what you can to extend the redemptive purposes of God in this time. We can be confident in the character of who God is, and our invitation to participate in God's renewal of all things remains the same. So be discerning about what we can do to participate in those redemptive purposes. The third thing I would remind us related to this uh, pandemic that we're facing is I would remind us to pray, and I don't mean that in a cliche way, um, but rather, I want to remind us what we learned a couple weeks ago, which is that when we pray, we bring a greater expression of God's kingdom to the world, that we need to, and we need that in these days, we need a greater expression of God's kingdom, so I encourage you to pray for those who are sick, Encourage, I encourage you to pray for healthcare workers who are caring for those who are sick, many of whom are working ex- extended hours. Pray for the scientists who are working on a vaccine or doing research that will help us better understand uh, the coronavirus. Pray for community and organizational leaders who are making important decisions about the response. And finally, don't forget to pray for each other and for yourselves. Uh, author Nadia Bolz-Weber wrote this week. It's also now a pandemic of human disappointment. Cancelled trips, art openings, sporting events, book tours, concerts. Things that folks have been planning for, working toward, and excited about. And that's a lot of grieving on top of sickness. And those words uh, ring particularly true uh, for Amy and I this week, who uh, were supposed to have been uh, in Israel, uh, seeing the sights of the ministry of Jesus and enjoying all that is to be enjoyed in that part of the world, uh, and yet we're not able to go. And so kind of recognizing our own disappointment, our own grieving of something lost. And so don't forget, as we care for one another, as we pray for others, don't forget to also pray for each other and for ourselves. And so with that being said, I would, I would just invite us to enter into a time of prayer for this uh, unique time in our world, um, praying for all of those who are involved. All of us have been affected by this, no doubt. Uh, then I'll share a, a, a short sermon, and then I'll lead us uh, in a unique time of communion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's enter into a time of prayer um, for our world right now. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you recognizing that despite all of our efforts for um, rugged individualism and kind of self-autonomy, it has taken just a small microscopic virus to remind us we're all in this together. And so, God, help us in these days. As we've prayed earlier, O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. God, we pray for those who are sick, for those who have lost loved ones, and in these days are mourning and for which the news takes on an especially personal tone, um, God, we pray that in the midst of their mourning and in the midst of their discomfort and illness, we pray that your presence would be felt, that you would bring peace and comfort uh, that passes understanding, and that somehow in the midst of that dif- tremendous difficulty and trial, God, that they would know your love and know your presence with them. We also pray, God, for healthcare workers, doctors, and nurses, and and others who are helping to care for the sick, who are working long and extended hours um, with healthcare facilities that are full and some overflowing um, in our own nation and around the world. And so um, God, we pray that you would bring energy and strength and clarity and discernment to all those who are helping to care for the sick, using their medical expertise. God, we pray also for scientists, researchers who are doing the good work of gathering information, helping us to understand this, this brand new disease that uh, we face, and those trying to develop cures and treatments and vaccines. And God, we believe that they are participating in your work of healing in the world, and so we pray that you would empower them and uh, be with them, and we, we pray, God, for healing through their work. We also pray, God, that you would be with community leaders, organizational leaders who are trying to make decisions about uh, response. God, again, we ask for your wisdom and for your discernment. Help us, Lord, to not be selfish in these days, but to take on your very character of of self-giving and self-sacrificial love wanting to care for others, help wanting to protect others. May God be with us as we gather in our living rooms and in our homes. We ask, God, that even though we're separated by space, that we would be connected in spirit to one another, uh, that we would have a sense of community together through this unique kind of gathering space. And Lord, we're thankful for the technology to do so, uh, recognizing that our brothers and sisters in the past would not have had um, even this opportunity. So Lord, be with us as we open up your word, as we seek to learn and to uh, discern. We pray that you would be with us, give us insight. And God, we pray for your healing in our world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our scripture this morning is out of John chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 11. I'll be reading from the NIV. It says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group Uh, And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. But what do you say? Now they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Then they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, I've been thinking about this story a lot in recent weeks and months, and I think this story has a lot to say to us. And I want to try to unpack it in just a few minutes here this morning. In this story, Jesus goes to the temple near the Mount of Olives, and he begins teaching to the crowd that had gathered there. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us the exact nature, uh, or John doesn't tell us the exact nature of what Jesus was teaching on that day. But if we follow the witness of the other Gospels, we can be fairly certain that it has to do with the announcement of the kingdom of God. Things like love of enemy, forgiveness, treating others as you would like to be treated. And then while he's in the middle of this teaching, religious leaders brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And let's be clear, the Pharisees do not bring the woman to Jesus out of genuine curiosity for how Jesus will handle such a situation. They bring her to Jesus in order to trap, uh, trap him so that they can rid themselves of this rogue rabbi who had been causing so much trouble. So they ask the question, according to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned, and so what do you say? Now, remember, this is a trap meant to kind of paint Jesus into a corner. If Jesus goes against the law of Moses, then he will be guilty of blasphemy, an offense that is certainly also uh, would put him in harm's way and be eligible for death. So if Jesus goes with the law of Moses, he's guilty of blasphemy, if he goes against. Now, if Jesus condemns the woman to death, then he would go against his own teachings of forgiveness, and therefore he would be discredited as a teacher, and the movement that bears his name would die. let's kind of back up and ask a larger question to try to get a real sense of what's going on here the question is why would ancient societies participate in stoning this is a terrible thing and if you kind of put yourself in the shoes of those who are participating in this you recognize just how ugly it all is so why would ancient societies do this the reality is Stoning allowed everyone to participate without implicating anyone. I want to say that again. Stoning allowed everyone to participate without implicating anyone. In other words, it is the ultimate action of the crowd. Everyone can throw a stone, but then walk away from the lifeless body and say, I didn't do it. I just threw a stone. This is the ultimate example of mob thinking. Stoning was the, you can think of it this way, stoning was almost like the ancient version of online bullying, right, where there's sort of this anonymity to it. There was this angry crowd that can direct all of their anger toward one person, but not one person in the mob feels the weight of what is being done. There's an an anonymity to it. And I want you to know that make no mistake, the practice of the angry crowd scapegoating an individual is evil. And it is the unholy spirit that animates the crowd as it spits blame on the the one that's being accused or the sinner, the one who's identified as the sinner. And what makes the practice even more vicious, both in the biblical story and in our own lives, is that it often has this religious veneer. The crowd comes to Jesus, right? Uh, The Pharisees come to Jesus quoting scripture while calling for the death of a woman caught in sin. And the unfortunate reality is that we don't have to look very hard before we find people who bear the name of Christ doing the same thing, quoting scripture while condemning those they deem sinners. And so this is what makes Jesus's actions so fascinating and also so beautiful. Jesus does not join the mob. He sees right through it, and he defends and forgives the woman caught in adultery. And I think that we just need to sit with this reality, right? And maybe no one's, we're not here to argue whether or not this is sinful. I think that we can maybe say, yeah, this is, this is, she's not doing the best thing. But still, Jesus comes to her, defends her and forgives her. What Jesus does through that action is he breaks the evil spirit of accusation and scapegoating by calling each one in the mob to a moment of self-reflection. In one brilliant sentence, in one brilliant sentence, let the one among you without sin be the first to cast a stone. Jesus breaks the mob mentality and forces each person to take responsibility for their own actions toward the woman. You see, in a mob, in a crowd, we'll do things that we would never do personally. We're so quick to join in the chorus of an angry mob or crowd on social media or a group of friends who are making fun of someone but often when we're equipped to join those things, we would never, if in a face-to-face conversation with that person, say those same things. So there's kind of this, this unholy spirit that animates the crowd, that animates the mob, and what Jesus does is he breaks that mentality and calls people to personal responsibility of their actions toward the one that is being accused. It's an absolutely brilliant way to not engage the mob on their own terms but to call them to something higher. And so Jesus breaks the evil of the mob by calling each one to personal responsibility. And then they went away one by one. Isn't that interesting? They gathered as a crowd, right? They all came together as a crowd, kind of having this mob mentality, this crowd mentality, so quick to blame and to accuse and to kind of paint over with this religious veneer the calling of the death of this woman but when Jesus calls them to personal responsibility, they don't leave as a crowd. They leave one by one because the evil of the mob mentality had been broken. It's an absolutely brilliant move on Jesus' part. But anytime we're looking at stories like this, we, we need to kind of consider how do we place ourselves in the story? Like, where do we find ourselves? Uh, If we place ourselves in the story as the one who's been caught in sin, and I think that all of us could place ourselves there, right? That all of us could say there are ways in which we have not participated in God's best in the world. We have broken God's shalom in the world. And so there's all these ways in which we can do this. And so there are all these ways that, that we can identify and say we're the ones that have been caught in sin. And when we, part- when we see ourselves in that way in this story, then we see the beauty of this story. This is probably why it's, one, it's a, such a famous story of the Gospels, is because there is this radical beauty to it. In other words, when we place ourselves in that point, the one who's caught in sin, we see the beauty of forgiveness. There are few things in this life, if anything, that is sweeter than forgiveness and advocacy maybe when we feel like we don't deserve it. Especially when we realize that the power of sin is broken through the power of forgiveness. I'm utterly struck by how Jesus does not approach this woman and he doesn't shake a finger at her and say, you shouldn't have done that. He doesn't blame her. He doesn't accuse her. He comes to her defense and offers her forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, the power of sin is broken in her life. And I I think what an approach for us as we think about how do we engage with people who maybe aren't living God's best for their lives. How do we do that? Do we come with kind of shaking fingers and accusation, or do we come with advocacy, and do we come with forgiveness? Well, there's, other, there's another part of the story, too, is what if we place ourselves in the story as a member of the crowd, as a member of the mob? Then if we place ourselves there, then this story should be so challenging to us, right? That it's a call to resist the temptation to join in the crowd the scapegoats a person or a group or a nation that we shouldn't get caught up in blame, that we should resist the temptation to join the scapegoating crowd that pinpoints one person maybe at school to make fun of or to bully because they don't have this or they can't do that. But then also to resist the very religious temptation to scapegoat a particular group of people that you might consider most sinful, right? That that if we place ourselves in in the... As a member of the crowd, then it becomes far more challenging. But here's what I really want you to see out of this passage. Both personal and corporate sin are defeated through Jesus's words of forgiveness. Both personal and corporate sin are defeated through Jesus's words of forgiveness. The woman experienced the beauty of forgiveness and is motivated to go and sin no more. But here's the interesting part of this story. That's the instruction Jesus gives. No one has accused you, so go and sin no more. The interesting part of the story is we don't find out. We have no idea if that's in fact what happened in her life. But let's go with the beauty of forgiveness. Is motivates her to go and sin no more. Now, those caught then in the attitude of the mob are released from its evil power and called to self-reflection and personal responsibility. In other words, Jesus' one brilliant sentence holds a mirror up to them and reveals the ugliness of their action. Because here's what I think. I think that if even one person had heard the words of Jesus and decided to go ahead and throw a stone then the crowd would have followed, right? It's the mentality of the crowd, the mentality of the mob. If one person had decided, I'm going to go ahead and throw it, then certainly the crowd then would have felt released from the words of Jesus and would have gone. Maybe one or two probably wouldn't and have gone away. But the, the, the thinking of the crowd is so powerful. But here's the thing. As the story is told in the Gospel of John, not one person could do that. Once they saw the evil of their action, not one person could have a mirror held up to them so that they could truly see uh, the evil of their action, ignore that and go ahead and throw the stone. And so that's the power of Jesus's words. The forgiveness that he offers breaks both the power of personal sin and corporate sin. And that is so powerful. And so I just encourage us this morning to to know the power of forgiveness, to no longer join the crowd that's intent on blaming the accused, because to do this is to walk in the way of Christ. Amen and amen. Well, I want to lead us now into a time of communion. If you haven't yet, I hope you'll take a few moments uh, right now to gather uh, the elements of whatever they might look like at home. Again, whatever you have uh, freely available is fine. It doesn't have to be grape juice. Um, but uh, just some some juice, some tea, uh, whatever you have, um, and then a cracker or bread um, for communion this morning. And here, here's what we'll do. I'll lead us in a communion liturgy. Um, and then uh, you can kind of follow my lead as to when to um, eat the cracker and to drink um, whatever you have available. So uh, you can follow my lead there. Uh, but let me lead us as we come to the Lord's table today. And, and I invite us to come to the table with an attitude, first of all, of thanksgiving for God's presence in our lives during this trial, during this kind of confusing kind of upending time uh, in our world, uh, but also come with a heart ready to receive the word that we have received today. Uh, That we are to not join uh, the crowd of accusation, uh, but rather are to uh, embody advocacy forgiveness um, toward others. And so let me lead us in the table as we come uh, kind of with, with that on our hearts. The communion supper is a sacrament which proclaims the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a means of grace for us, in which we believe Christ is present and active to form our lives in accordance with his will. We receive this meal, not only in remembrance of what Christ has done, but with hope of his coming again and the day when all things will be made new. So we come to the table that we may be renewed in life and salvation and be made one by his spirit. So it is in unity with the church throughout the ages that we confess our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So do this in remembrance of me. And so we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to God in praise and in thanksgiving pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. May they be the power of your Spirit, May to be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ that's been redeemed by his blood. So by your Spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now I invite you to pray out loud, right there in your home with me, um, the prayer that we were taught to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Now this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that's been broken for you. Preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. And this is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that's been shed for you preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Let's pray. God, we thank you for joining us this morning in this unique space, in this unique way. I pray for the church today. As many churches follow the guidance of cities and counties to not meet together. I pray, God, that the church would not be weakened in this time, but the church would be strengthened. That we would find ways of ministry that would move your redemptive purposes forward in the world, and the God that we would not feel alone in these times, but through technologies like these and other means, motivated and animated by the Spirit of God, that you would bring us together in unity. That the church may be strengthened, and that we might shine brightly in the or that our lives may shine so brightly. The others will be drawn in. And so God be with us in these days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.